episode of Watch the Game, presented by the Nation Network. I'm your host, Sam Blazer, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Cam Lewis. Cam, how are you doing on this uh, Tuesday night? I'm good, but tired, and I'm cold, and I feel like our guest can also agree to the sentiment of how awful and cold it is right now. Yeah, exactly. Our guest this week is uh, Michael Fail. Uh, Mike, how are you doing today? Uh, I can't complain. Outside of the, the like sub-zero Arctic uh, experience that is Edmonton, Alberta right now, it's, uh, it's basically a frozen hellscape, and the wind is like a dagger, and it hurts, and I think I have frostbite. But outside of that, you know, I'm having a pretty good day. You guys are both in Edmonton. How is that, like, living there? Is it... Wait, really? Yeah, I can't... Yeah. You're in Edmonton? How could... I'm from Edmonton, yeah. How come we've never hung out? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let's let's keep this all in. I am not editing this out. I want to have, like, the conversation right now about why you guys haven't hung we, out. Why aren't, we in the, why aren't we in the same room just doing this? It would be a lot easier than, like, three different Skype accounts. <laughs> do you live on the north... What side of the city do you live on? I live in the south side. Oh, whereabouts? Uh, like, kind of in a Terwilliger area off the Pende. Off. Oh, you're, I swear. Yeah, go for it. Oh, fuck, you're rich then. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm a, I shouldn't say, I'm a, I mean, I'm up in Greensboro, up by uh, Northgate. I'm in, I'm in that swank area. But yeah, once, once you get north of downtown, I'm like totally lost. Like, I'm, I'm really familiar with the Southwest. I'm really familiar with like Capilano and downtown and man, Sam, you're getting a fucking geography lesson on Edmonton right now. So listen up if you ever come here. I'm familiar with those areas, but if you take me north of downtown, then I'm just lost. Like I know, I know how to get to like the arenas, like Clareview, Castle Downs, and places like that. But otherwise, like man, I'm just like deer in the headlights up there. Wait, how long have you lived here? Uh, my entire life. Are I'm you? 20... Oh. <laughs> so, so on December 29th is my my 10 year anniversary in Edmonton. Like after I moved here and started going to school and then became an adult and everything like that and put my life together. But I am pleased to hear that I have some sort of bearing on how to navigate the city better than somebody who's lived here their entire life. This makes me feel really good now. I, yeah. When did you move, when did you move here? Ten years ago? Where'd you move from? Uh, Northern British Columbia, Chetwin, BC, the home of Derek England. <laughs> so what brought you here? uh school like we moved like all my friends and i we moved out here for university and college and i ended up at nate um go ooks and uh <laughs> i got a job right out of college i was the first one in my program to get a job and i worked for dell and then i got laid off because dell has a really bad business plan and strategy and uh then i worked at a grocery store and now i have a real adult job where i get to analyze data all day and pretend that i know what i'm doing is that is that are you talking about are you referencing flames nation or are you talking about something else oh like i have an actual day job god no the nation network can't pay me what i need like (laughs) (laughs) if if they could that would be great but no 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 i I have a i have an adult job a company has willingly hired me and uh it'll be seven years in january which makes me feel really old um so yeah that's that's the history of me, and uh, we should hang out. We should go to actually. We should go to. We should go to an Oil Kings game because I have season tickets. Yeah, sure. I'm done. I'm always happy to go to Oil Kings games. I haven't been to an Oil Kings game since. Oh Jesus Christ! Since before they won the Mem Cup, I was. I, I last time I watched them, I think Griffin Reinhardt was 16. So that's how long it's been for me and the Oil Kings. Griffin Reinhardt, a gentleman who was once regarded as the next big thing in the NHL, who can't skate. 
can't do anything right and got what it was a first round pick and a second round pick yep two top 60 picks in the Connor mcdavid draft for griffin reinhardt like four days after dougie hamilton was traded to calgary for the exact same package great this makes me feel really <laughs> good making me feel really great really old making me feel good about dougie uh, i can't complain well, I guess we can transition to this, and then I, I guess it's my turn to talk too. I, you know, being an American, no, this, this is this is an Edmonton only podcast. You're not allowed to talk. You don't, you, you're just going to listen the whole time. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I don't mind. I can I can sit here and listen to it the entire time. But I want to talk about Dougie Hamilton just for a hot sec. What do you think about the trade rumors? Do you think he get tra- gets traded, Mike, or what's going on there? I I kind of want your two cents on it all. So this will be somewhat controversial because I am one of the biggest Dougie boosters on the internet. I love that gentleman, even though he actually he hasn't blocked me yet, which is really good. I think that's a good thing. Um, regardless, uh, I think the trade rumors are legitimate in varying degrees, depending on who you're talking to. Um, when it comes to specific Toronto media that have kind of been perpetuating it, I think that they don't know the whole story. And I think that they're kind of going on a tangent or just like a portion of a story that they heard and they decided to turn into its own little story. Um, I don't feel that, I mean, obviously like if we look back at his first year as a flame with, as a flame and, you know, with the team, uh, it took about, you know, 30, 35 games for him to kind of get adjusted to, uh, I don't want to say a system because what Bob Harley did was, (laughs) I don't, it was like the equivalent of watching, um, soldiers cross the Volga and try and take back like a city in World War II at times. Like it was just like, it was just bullets everywhere and pucks going everywhere. And it, it wasn't, for one thing, like it wasn't great for his development. You know, he was 22 at the time and he's going to be, you know, he's 23 now, he'll be 24 by the end of the season. And, you know, those are peak years, especially in this modern NHL where you want to have uh, an environment where your players are learning the right habits and, um, maximizing their potential through systems and tactics and coaching and the best way to develop them. And that was, it was a a culture shock in a lot of ways for him coming over from Boston and in a system that Claude Julian really, you know, had hammered down as a, a very puck possession based team and very strong in their own end and all of these things that the flames weren't. And, you know, it took some time, he got adjusted and he finished the season and he put up career numbers and he was doing that a lot of the time with, you know, below average or suboptimal line mates and you know people on his pairing and the same thing carried over to the start of the season and again um new coach this time so his third coach and <laughs> sure enough the the same adjustment period problem happened and he got bumped down to the third pairing and his results weren't coming and fans were calling for him to get traded again and that's when everything started coming out and you know, I reached out to some people I know and I just asked because they're kind of closer to the team than I am and I'm relatively dialed in and I've kind of got my little network of sources. But uh, there was a bit of a bit of smoke where people might assume there is a fire. People it was more more along the lines of, hey, maybe there is some internal buyer's remorse to some degree and whether or not that's 100 percent accurate or 50% accurate or 10% accurate, I don't know. But the, I think there was a reevaluation period, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that in the NHL right now, you need to be evaluating the the roster and the, the players you have in your system and all of the bits and pieces on a, a regular basis. It's a great way to keep your biases in check and make sure that you're not falling victim to narratives um, or 
trends or things like that that might not be true. And uh, I know I had tweeted out probably like two weeks ago, like kind of at the trail end of this whole saga that should have just never happened publicly, um, that if they were receiving calls on Dougie, it's not a bad thing. I mean, that's another way to reevaluate the talent in your roster, get an approximate value of what they are across the league. And, you know, we had heard like the, the coyotes offered Anthony Duclair in a pick, which is it's laughable, even though uh, I really do like Anthony Duclair and he's having a rough season so far, but you know, it is what it is. And sure enough, once you put a, a, a talented player in a position to succeed, like Dougie Hamilton, you put him with a defenseman who can skate and move the puck and compliment him in his strengths and you know the opportunities in his game to improve because no player is perfect. Sure enough, you saw this full portrait of what Dougie Hamilton is, which is this immaculate, you know, big defenseman who can skate, move the puck very well, and pass the puck, and he's got a great shot that always seems to find its way on net and. Over the last, you know, 10, 11, you know, maybe even 15 games, he's really put it together and he's kind of become the guy that a lot of people who might have had misconceptions about his game uh, throughout, of la- throughout last season and throughout parts of this season, you know, have come to appreciate. And he's, he's the Flames' best defenseman right now. And I'll put that on record and I will die by that. So, yeah, that's a that's that's definitely like I had a similar sentiment towards Dougie Hamilton and I thought. It was so bizarre that the Flames were, that the rumors were coming up that the Flames were, you know, I guess the way it was uh, played out in the media was that they weren't impressed with him or they, there was, there was those rumblings whether they were substantiated or not about him having like a, a personality that didn't fit with the team, spending too much time with his brother, bizarre things like that. But another player that I'm kind of interested in as someone that, you know, doesn't pay much attention to the Flames is Sean Monahan, having just signed a large extension, it seems for the first time I've noticed myself, I guess, the fans seem to be quite upset with his game. What are your what are your thoughts on Sean Monaghan? Um, he's he's such a he's kind of an enigma in a lot of ways because if you look at the skill set and all of the various inputs and things that make up what Sean Monaghan is on paper, you would assume one of two things. You know, he's this up and coming, you know very skilled two-way forward with a high offensive output and the other side of it is you 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 kind of get some warning signs especially from some scouting reports like his skating has never been great you know he doesn't really drive shots on his own little things like that and the the latter portion comes to more from i guess more objective based analysis and statistics and things like that and um there's no doubt that he has the high offensive output that a lot of people were expecting, you know, he scores goals and he does it at a pretty impressive rate, especially over the the past three seasons of like, when you look at a shooting percentage, both uh, in all situations and at, at five versus five, like he's puts a puck in the net and that's a great thing. That's a valuable asset to have at the NHL level and on your roster. And he does it, you know, he isn't even in his peak years yet. So that that's a huge thing to have. And he did it on teams that struggled. So, you know, that's wonderful and everything like that. But the other side that I've always had an issue with personally and that fans are starting to come around on because the goals dried up recently was he is a disaster away from the puck and almost helpless at times unless he has a trigger man with him. And the trigger man we all know is Johnny Gaudreau. Like, um, when it comes to distributing the puck and putting Sean Monahan into a position to succeed – it's typically Johnny Gaudreau doing it. 
And Sean Monaghan is responsible for scoring those goals. But if you, if, I mean, realistically, if you look closer, it's a you know a composition of you know Mark Giordano and even Dennis Weidman. If you look at um, major players in terms of goal generation for him, like there's about three or four guys that stand out. And uh, you know, as soon as he started struggling and not scoring and doing all those things that everybody's talking about and raving about. Um, everybody started noticing that, you know, in the neutral zone, he's listless. He isn't really engaged. He isn't great on the forecheck. Um, he isn't great at breaking up plays or breaking up zone entries. Um, if you look at his play in the defensive zone, which is something that is almost like a horror movie at times, it's, it's almost appalling and, you know, he's, he's going to get there hopefully, but he doesn't really get engaged in puck battles, um, or trying to break up passes or, you know, his positioning is really bad at times and he just kind of looks out of place and lost. And it screams like nobody at the NHL level has sat him down and actually explained how to play in his own zone. It's always been, okay, well, he's scoring goals, so it can make up for those deficiencies and or we'll have somebody else cover for him. But if the people covering for him, like Mark Giordano and TJ Brody for parts of the season have started faulting and not having the best start and you have line mates like Johnny Gaudreau out and you have maybe suboptimal, you know, players like uh, Alex Chieson or to a lesser extent, Christopher Stieg, because he, you know, isn't the strongest defensive player. Um, you started noticing more and more. And so there was, he got burned probably, you know, 10, I want to say maybe 10, 15 times this season already. And in one game, he had two direct impacts on goals that could have been pre- prevented. Um, it's, it's painstaking to watch him do that. And, you know, you see glimpses here and there at times um, in the last couple of games, like he, the little circumstances and situations he's been in where he's kind of put together. But um, knowing what I've seen over his career so far at the NHL level, I'm reluctant to believe that there'll be any growth in his game at this rate for a while. Like in that side of it, I think that um, more time with the coaching staff and working on that element of his game is a huge deal. And some in the fan base might regard that as, okay, well, you're taking away from his opportunity to score goals. And, you know, that's a fair point, right? That's what he's known for. That's what he's being paid for. But the thing is, at some point down the road, this this team is going to rely on him to provide some sort of impact in a positive way outside of scoring goals. And maybe it's Sam Bennett who steps up and does that role, that, that two-way center that uh, Sean Mahan was pegged as, but... Again, like the same the same problem creeps up. It's like, well, you have to you have to relegate more time to Bennett's development for that, or you know, you just have to find an option to fill in and eat those heavy minutes. You know, there's gonna be a time when Michael Backlund isn't on the team and he does all that heavy lifting right now. And even Matt Stajan was the guy who did that for quite a while as well. And he's approaching, you know, the twilight years of what's left of his career, and he's not able to play that top, uh, you know, the tough competition and eat those minutes that might be necessary that might have to be distributed to guys like Sean Monaghan down the road. You brought up uh, Johnny Gaudreau. First off, before I ask the question itself, what do you, what is the appropriate nickname for him? I like Johnny hockey, but I feel like that's played out now, right? No, we call him Johnny hockey. I mean that that's who he is. Like from a brand perspective, not to get old uh, Darren Roval here, but like that's <laughs> the entity that is Johnny Gaudreau. You know, he came in, he made a name for himself and it's stuck, and I think it's a good thing. I think that's a great nickname. Um, so yeah, it's Johnny Hockey. No doubt. Uh, no overall, what is it? What do you think his impact is on the team? How important is he to the team? Because when he got injured, it kind of seemed like it was dire straits for a little while. 
and now now he's back and there's they're putting up you know they're winning some games. Uh, what do you, what do you think his overall impact is on the team itself? Um, we're seeing it in the tonight, especially against the Stars, and the other night against Anaheim. Like this team, uh, in a, a heavy, uh, they're going to heavily rely on him from an offensive output role. Like he he is the catalyst at forward at this point to drive the power play and even strength scoring. And you know they did put goals together and they did put you know forward a, a pretty decent showing without him, but it was. It's hard to really say that the team is going to be able to do that all the time. I mean, they sure as hell couldn't do it through the first, you know, handful of games with him in the lineup and with the depth playing, you know, roughly the same minutes or a little bit less. Um, But he matters uh, much more than, uh, you know, Mark Giordano or, uh, you know, TJ Brody or Sean Monaghan or even Sam Bennett at this point. Like, he is going to be the guy that makes people rich in some regard, you know, by distributing the puck to them and getting them into situations where they can score easy goals because he has a knack for that. He has this you know, incredible knack for putting himself in a position where he can pass the puck pretty much anybody coming in on net, and it's going to be a pretty good pass, and it's going to be, you know, highly likely that it results in a, a decent scoring chance if the player gets through or a goal. And he, he just does so many wonderful things on ice, especially in terms of, you know, driving uh, – controlled zone entries and uh, just breaking through the neutral zone and um, drawing players into him to create space for others. These are just little things that make up this little person who just does wonderful things. And um, when they signed him this off season and, you know, I I shouldn't say off season. I mean, it was in October, but when they signed him and everybody was like, Oh wow, they got him so cheap. It's like, well, he, he kind of still is worth what the reported asks were like, he's going to, he's going to outperform that contract and be paid considerably less than what he will be worth. And, you know, you should be locking up your players to the best value that you can. And they, sh- they sure as hell did it. So uh, I'm, I'm glad he's back. He played fantastic tonight against Dallas and against Anaheim. He completely ruined them. So it was a, a nice return for him. One thing we've talked about, I mean, we mentioned the flames um, a while while back when Sam, Jeff, and I were talking about things to be thankful for on Thanksgiving, and all three of us were kind of dumbfounded, and we're not really sure where this team is right now. Are they, like, they're kind of the perfect example of a middling team that has a lot of good young talent, but then also a lot of older talent. And some people seem to think they should go, you know, all in and try and win, which is, you know, somewhat uh, reflected by a signing like, you know, Troy Brower in the offseason. And then some people think they should be rebuilding, which, I mean, obviously they're not doing. But where do you think they are? Is this a playoff team or is this a team that's looking for another high draft pick? Or are they in that kind of ugly middle spot right now? Um, I think they're in the ugly middle spot, and I don't think that's a bad thing for this team right now. Um, they're not, I don't think that they're a playoff team by any stretch because even if they squeak in like they did in 2014 and 15, um, and get a first round berth against a, a weak opponent, like say, you know, I guess whatever the season's equivalent of the Canucks would be for squeaking in, like even if they got in and took took uh, a team to like six games or something like that and then won a round, they're still going to get destroyed the next round. It's just not going to, I mean, congratulations. Like you did something impressive, but you're still a middling team at that point who didn't achieve the the overall goal of winning the Stanley cup. Um, 
I think that at this stage, they, like you said, they have a lot of older pieces that might not make a lot of sense. And they have some older pieces that are actually on their final legs and will be gone at the end of the season, like Derek England and Dennis Wideman. And uh, that's a lot of money that you can free up to make a huge step forward in the off season um, and try and add appropriately and put yourself in a position for, you know, twice or, you know, 2017, 2018 to be a, an actual threat in the Western conference. Like, we, I mean, we all expected that the Blackhawks should drop off this season a little bit and they stumbled a bit and they've sort of found their grounding, but they're still going to be a threatening team. And the central, like the entire central division is a juggernaut. So um, you're basically going to have to get through a bunch of those teams buying for a wild card spot. And then the Pacific division, Anaheim, San Jose and LA likely are going to lock up those three spots. Unless like Anaheim really stumbles under Carlisle. I'm not really sure at this point, they're such a, a weird team to watch some nights. So they're actually kind of dominating. And the other night, like against Anaheim or sorry, I guess Calgary on the, on the other end of their back-to-back, they just completely decimated. Um, and then you look down the line, it's like, well, Edmonton, like you have nothing I have no idea what to make of this Edmonton team. They're going to ride the the back of Connor McDavid until he's dead, and they're, they're going to ride the back of Chris Russell until he's dead. That's the real that's the real juggernaut behind this team. Let's be honest with ourselves. Yeah, you know he boosts save percentage right when he's on the ice. Therefore, he's super elite and he's going to fix this team. But um, not not all of us can write scorching hot garbage like that week in and week out. <laughs> but uh, like the, the the big thing is like if this team makes the playoffs, great. They can make some more money. This team, on a financial level, would like some more money. The oil economy has been a big hit to Calgary and the city itself, and it's impacted the the ownership. And so that's the only real good reason for them to make the playoffs. If if they finish outside of the playoffs, that's not a bad thing, especially if they get a decent pick, because they can flip that pick at the draft or during the summer or do something crazy to augment the team in the right way um, by adding a, a top flight right winger or finding a way to pry out another defenseman from another team to uh, get the second pairing short up because um, with Dennis Weidman leaving in the off season and Derek England likely leaving for Vegas, um, there's a lot of money to be, you know, tossed around and they've got some picks to play with. They've got a great system in place with goaltending depth and defensemen. Um, for at forward, there, there's a lot of players that might be something, but they're going to be years away, and it's, they're in a position to actually start acquiring things and actually start buying pieces to become a threat. Um, so I think it's a. I think this coming summer is going to be probably one of the more interesting times of Calgary Flames hockey, probably in the last couple of years. Even more interesting than you know last summer when they got Dougie Hamilton or um, anything else before that. For sure. I want to transition to a couple of uh, Twitter questions we got. Tom Hunter, uh, obviously we all know him, at Puck Don't Lie. Uh, he said, as a Flames fan, how does Mike feel about Kachuk putting the edge back into his game after focusing on skill in London? Uh, I don't care what Matthew Kachuk does because whenever he's on ice, the team likely will be in the offensive zone and driving play. <laughs> I mean, here's like... I know what he's getting at. He's he's worried about like penalty differential and him starting starting shit and being a, a Corey Perry Jr. And you know he Tom has a fair point. Like the obvious concern is reining in Matthew Kachuk from doing something completely ridiculous, like you know potentially head bunting somebody the other night or <laughs> picking a fight with literally anybody who breathes near him or even wants to say hello to him. He seems to want to start scrum about it. And 
I think it's a good and it's a bad thing. You know, if he can get in the habit of drawing calls as opposed to taking them, then he's putting the team at an advantage where they're on the power play. Um, I don't think that. I, how do I word this? I don't think what he does is inherently a detriment so much as it just needs to be refined. It's an opportunity for him in his game. And I think if he can maximize that element of what he brings, which is something that is valuable at the NHL level, then it's only going to make the team around him better. He also asked whether or not if it was at the team's request. Do you think that there's any merit to that at all? Or do you think that this is just Kachuk doing his thing? I think this is probably Tom assuming that Brian Burke has some sort of control over the situation, yeah. like a weird, pup, <laughs> like a weird puppet master. Maybe um, this organization does have an enamorment with those characteristics. When you look down the lineup at like a Lance Boma or a Garnet Hathaway or even Michael Furland, right? Like they do value these characteristics, but um, Brad Treliving's regime seems to be embracing a lot of skill and, um, newer thinking so uh if he wants me to admit that brian burke is controlling the situation i will not do that because it's brad trey living's team and uh i think that they want matthew kachuk to be matthew kachuk and if his aggressive play becomes a problem of course they're going to step in and work with him on it that would just be foolish if they didn't now uh number one nick antropov fan at hockey lake 72 asked you know obvious <laughs> tongue-in-cheek question Derek England, elite, but what do you really think of Derek England's game? He was, it was actually one of the questions I had on here, but I figure, you know, might as well work the Twitter angle in. Oh, this is like all right off the heels of me shit-talking Derek England for like 36 straight hours. Um, Derek England signed a three-year contract worth $3 million a year AAV. That's not a typo. It wasn't a typo when Bob McKenzie tweeted it out. It's not a typo after all these years of laughing at that tweet. It's just a reality. And so as a player, I absolutely loathe everything about his game. Um, he offers nothing in the world of suppressing shots at a, an acceptable level and more or less like uh, even at a level where it's acceptable for his pay grade. He doesn't drive play. In fact, he is a significant drag on shot metrics. He is being employed right now to play on the penalty kill and play significant minutes on the penalty kill, might I add. And he is among the league's worst right now, if I'm not mistaken, in Corsi against per 60 on the penalty kill. I believe he's among the bottom percentile, I think, in Fenwick against as well. And I think he has one of the worst goal differentials on the penalty kill as well. I can also say with extreme certainty, because I obsess over the penalty kill, it is like a religion to me, and I worship it, that I've seen at least three goals this season on the penalty kill that were a direct result of Derek England either being out of position, blocking the goalie and screening them, preventing him from tracking the puck, or failing to catch somebody come in towards the net and score an easy goal. Um, that said, the human side to me, I'm, I'm assuming he's a great guy. And I think that's why there's this weird small contingent of people who like him and think he's God. But if you look at him in the most like object, like subjective or I shouldn't say subjective, but the most objective based way is like, does he provide a positive impact to your team in any regard? The answer I can come up with is a, is like an extreme, probably not. And, some people might not like that because he 
he still embodies that old world mentality that defensemen are rugged and tough and they're hard to play against. And, you know, he'll stand up for his teammates and do all these things while it's like, okay, that's great. But can I put you out there for 18 minutes a night and hope to God you, you won't make a mistake that cost us a goal or two or a scoring chance against it, things like that. And to his credit tonight, he had a, I think he had like two or three pretty strong plays with breaking up zone entries and moving the puck around. And it like this season specifically. So final year of his contract, it's a contract year. We know he's going to Vegas. He's got a home there. He met his wife there. They live there in the off season. He is playing above England level. If that makes sense. Like he's, <laughs> he's like a, a capable six defenseman. I'd say like, 30% of the time. And that's nice. That's me being nice. Like I'm not trying to slag on the guy. I've done that enough for the last few years, but it's like, there are better people in the organization, like better players that could provide stability and a better impact in those minutes than he could. And it's yeah. <laughs> Brett Kulak. I, I love you. I wish you could get out of the press box and I hope to see you play again soon. Well, what's interesting for me uh, a lot of times is that whenever I talk about a player, whether it be about the Blue Jackets or just the NHL in general, it's always really, really tough, not necessarily to write a hit piece, but to say someone is not very good. Because, like, this is what they do for a living, and they still made the NHL. And so, like, I always have a tough time, like, doing it. Obviously, in one way, I also want to say, like, you know, actually, Derek England improved from, you know, like a dog shitting in the house to a dog shitting on the sidewalk. Like, there's, like, some improvement there, but you also, like, and you want to be almost inflammatory so, like, you can, like, have people react to it. But by the same token, you know, there's also someone on the other end of, like, a lot of this stuff. I Like, at least uh, myself, and I feel like, uh, maybe on an island, I'll, I'll put it to you guys, but how tough is it for you guys, like, in general, to, like, write about someone and then, like, take it into context that this is actually, like, a person on the other end? <laughs> I hate, I, I actually hate being negative uh, about players. I think it's, it, it, it's a, it sucks to do, but it's also just, like, it's the job, right? Like, I mean, if you're writing about hockey and you're afraid to be critical of somebody because, you know, they're not, you know, they're not good, then well, what are you really even doing? Like, I mean... I understand not saying uh, absurd things and like, you know, personal insults and shit like that. I mean, obviously you shouldn't do that, but I mean, you can't just sit there in your chair and tell yourself, Oh, well, like, you know, if this guy one-on-one me in beer league, then he kicked the shit out of me. Well, yeah, obviously there's no doubt about that. But the point of writing is to be able to take, to be able to watch a game and then, and talk about how good a player is in relation to his peers in relation to his competition and say, this player is helping this team win or this player is resulting in this team losing X, Y, and Z. Like if you can't do that, then you're not the kind of soul who should be writing about sports. And that's just like, that's fine. But I mean, it's really something that's pretty necessary to being a good writer, but I think there's definitely a fine line between talking shit, which I think some personalities do that and, and, and being fair. Yeah. There's a, there's an antagonistic element to it, which a lot of people will perpetuate. And it goes on both sides of that discussion. One as a writer and then the second as a reader. And I know like, I don't have a problem telling, telling it as it is. And if it turns out that I'm wrong, then I like in the long run, then that's a great thing too. Like if it turns out a player that I said was not very good in, in providing a positive output for his team and his teammates against, you know, whatever competition, if they end up being, a better player eventually i will admit 
I'm wrong. But if we look at, I guess, like the the sports writing community right now that all three of us are in and um, people that will listen to us are either readers or writers in, it's that fine line that you were talking about that is really hard to manage. And I think the one thing to keep in mind, and I know that a lot of the writers that I love reading never cross the line of anything beyond the ice, unless it's, you know, a significant issue off ice, you know, with those uh, specific names, you know, removed from this conversation because I want to get on that tangent, but um, it's tricky. And the main thing to always keep in mind, especially for readers, because they feel that you're attacking a player personally because of the quality of their job is that we're just measuring and assessing the output of what they're doing. Nobody, like nobody cares about intangibles or, things like that. And like as writers, as people who are objective, especially in the stats world, which I feel that all three of us are in, um, we just, we all understand that these are things that make up a player and they may have a impact or a direct impact or a, an indirect impact on the res, you know, the results they produce is along with environmental factors and secondary factors and things like that, that we can attempt to measure or um, try to adjust for. And, I guess where I'm going with this is like, if you're a reader and you're offended that I've said that a player played poorly the night before in a, a post game summary, and I have evidence to back it up, you know, they were on ice for X amount of goals against or X amount of shots against or scoring chances, or, you know, they made a play in the neutral zone that, you know, the op- opposition's forward capitalize on breaking in and they laid up the goalie like they, like uh, Curtis McKenzie did tonight against uh, the Flames because TJ Brody made a mistake and Dennis Weidman failed to capitalize. We're like, I'm going to talk about it because it's important to the story and the important it's important to the story because you want to tell the whole, like the best, clearest picture of the situation. And the minute you start getting into a conversation when you're you're trying to take into account, you know, how is this player going to feel if I say, yeah, they were bad for a week because they surrendered X amount of goals and X amount of shots against, and they're doing all these little things. And it, it's just not worth your time and you should probably stop because oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. It's just, it's the worst, it's the worst thing to get down. And I, I fall victim to it time and time again, but like if I'm writing something and I think that I'm crossing that line of two, like one side of the spectrum too far, that's why I have an editor. That's why I have friends <laughs> that will proofread my work. Like there are checks and balances in place to make sure that, as long as you're being a logical person about your analysis, like if you're going one side or the other, like too far, somebody's going to help you out, especially if you have, you know, people around you to work with that. I guess that's what I'm going with. I think that's kind of the, that's kind of the nice thing about analytics writing that I've noticed. And I mean, I, I pretty much almost exclusively only read analytics based pieces now just because that's where I'm at. But, um, I I feel like when you look at the numbers, it, it really takes away the, the desire to be, subjective or be a homer or just hate on teams you don't like i mean like right now the analytics community is getting a lot of shit because you know uh, matt henderson or jonathan willis likes to pick on chris russell and everyone's angry there i mean you can obviously attest to this you got you had the same situation in calgary with the flames the past few years but you know the traditionalists get mad and they think we're just you know out there to make chris russell feel like trash or make him out to be like this garbage person but it's it's really just it's really just trying to be objective and it's like, it's pretty noticeable how important analytics are when, you know, you have a player like Russell who Oilers fans suddenly will do everything to defend, despite the fact that last year they were laughing at how 
bad he was on the Flames. And it's like, well, I mean, he played for the rival team last year and he was bad to you. And now he plays for your team and he's good. It kind of makes it like quite clear that like we need to do something to make this more objective. For right. Sure. And sorry, I just want to kind of go on this for a little bit if we got a little bit more time because I think it's a Not really totally. good tangent to hop on. Um, the thing about those I guess individuals specific to the city we live in, Cam, uh, they they made their careers doing the exact same thing that they're claiming that, you know, our friends and peers are doing in the, the community right now, which is writing astute, honest, or I, I shouldn't say astute because some pieces aren't that level or inherently honest in some cases, but relatively straightforward, honest pieces that try to be as, you know, pointing and pre- like precise as possible. And it's it's like this weird irony watching, you know, these guys go to bat. It's like, well, he's a great guy in the room. He's got a warrior mentality. It's like, well, nobody, nobody fucking cares. <laughs> like fans care about wins and losses, right? And mm. they care about outputs. They care about things that they can measure and they can see. Oh, this player scored five goals last night. It's great. My team won, right? Oh, you know, my team lost last, lost last night. They lost like 8-2, like bad. Goalie's bad, right? People are super reactionary. They want to blame people for when things go wrong and they want to praise people for when things go right. And it's like this weird dichotomy and balance that you kind of have to manage there. And the, the bittersweet thing with a lot of those guys on that side of the fence who feel like we're being too aggressive and too harsh about a particular player, in this case, Chris Russell, who seems to be a whipping boy right now. And uh, maybe they feel attacked that they're, their workspace is being encroached on by people who are coming in from a third party, you know, bloggers and um, people with non-traditional backgrounds. It could be an element of that. And I think maybe in the past, a few people have mentioned it and they've actually, you know, admitted that that is something that concerns them. And it could be a lot of different factors involved, but um, with Chris Russell, particularly, I know that like I had seen well over 150 games of him play in Calgary and, well before my time, um, before I started reading more into the game and studying systems and tactics and um, stats, uh, I actually enjoyed Chris Russell because he did things that were, I guess, appealing to the fan in me. Like this is gonna this is gonna come out like I'm a, a secret Chris Russell fan, even though people seem to claim that I am. But he does things that are appealing to the casual fan, and he does things that are appealing to people who. I appreciate like, uh, I don't know how to put it like a, a warrior, like a soldier, like I'm a big history buff, like, so like a war nerd. Right. So he does things that are, that kind of parallel those elements of, you know, self-sacrifice and stuff like that. And those have a place in storytelling, right? There, there are great writers who can do great, you know, great writing with storylines and attributes and things like that in this sport and, you know, outside of the sport. But, uh, there's obviously that divergence from um, that type of writing in our generation and past generations and where it's going right now, which is everything wants to be very detailed and stats focused and things like that. And it's, it's weird because you don't want the storytelling elements to disappear, but you also want them to get more accurate. It, I heard like the whole concept of like, Oh, you know, we looked up the moon thousands of years ago we assumed it was a god right and as we got older and wiser and as we evolved uh, on a societal level we figured out that the moon wasn't a god it wasn't a planet it was just you know a huge chunk of rock that had some significant impact on tides and things like that and the 
I guess the point of this hyperbole that I'm going on is like we're we're fastly approaching, you know, I don't want to say like a new frontier because it sounds kind of corny and cliche, but like we're we're getting better at analyzing things, and that's a good thing. It's a great thing for the sport because if it rubs off the right way, we're going to see teams take that into account. And we've seen that with people getting hired and things like that, but it's going to make us better fans because of it. Cause we're going to be able to pick up on the intricacies of the game. And I know a lot of people don't like seeing romanticism removed from the game because it's a big reason why they became fans of the sport. But you, sometimes you have to put that aside, right? You can, you can still mm-hmm. hold on to it. It's just, it's not going to have a place in, major parts of writing online and if you want to seek that out you can definitely seek it out there's always going to be somebody out there who wants to tell a romanticized story of a, a game where a player sacrificed his body and blocked six shots and he had hobbled off during the second period and uh, he came back triumphantly in the third period to block a few more shots and score the big game winning goal like that's a story but the other side of it is if that player was on ice and he surrendered you know 30 shot attempts against during that game and a couple goals against like tells a whole other story yeah, it's, Which, it's kind of. Sorry for interrupting you, but it's kind yeah. of. Uh, it's kind of like the difference between the two types of writing is one's the big picture and one's the small picture. I mean, you have, you know, the story-based narrative, which is this is what happened tonight in a vacuum, and then you have what analytics people write about, and what I think, you know, turns people off or confuses them because they're not used to it is that you're writing about a big picture. You're writing about, you know, what maybe Chris Russell blocked, you know, four shots and he took one in the face, but you know he allowed 38 shot attempts against. And it was great in this game because all those blocks came in the final minute and it was key and the team won. It was awesome. But long term, like, you know, th- that puck maybe next time doesn't hit him in the chest and it goes by like tonight and Rasmus Ristolainen scores the overtime winning goal and the Sabres tie it up with 30 seconds to go. And it's kind of like that overarching big picture that like a lot of fans just don't want to bother to see. And I think with fans, I think it's okay and I can let it go. I mean, if you're watching at a bar and you like Chris Russell, that's all good. Like you can you can pick who you like, it's fine. We all experience things differently. But I think for me the thing is is with media, I think you're not really doing your job if you don't bother to understand the analytics and you don't have to be a pure analytics writer, but I think you have to you have to challenge yourself to get it because you have to do that service to all of your fans and whether, you know, we still are like a quite like a like a minority. I st- there's like a lot of people that want to consume this kind of writing for sure. Right. And, and what was interesting is Mike, I brought the whole entire thing about Derek England and all that at the end, because what came to mind is actually today, or maybe it was the day before either way there was uh, there was a tweet and it's a pretty obvious subtweet at uh, the web, the website that I run with uh, Allison Lucan and Buckeye state hockey. And it was basically like Jack Johnson had been, uh, had been dealing with this bankruptcy case for so long and now he's finally playing well where are the people actually talking about this and then so then I kind of like thought to myself for a little while well you know I have definitely been hypercritical of Jack Johnson within the past three years and there have been multiple times where I've like you know tweeted out a picture of like maybe like a traffic cone like laying on the side of the road where and just said wow I can't believe Jack Johnson did this tonight and done something like that obviously tongue-in-cheek but then you start to think to yourself like like you see this you see it like out in the wild and you think to yourself have I really been too hard he's obviously been dealing with all these things but also by the same token I feel like I have been you know objective about what I've written about him but by the same token looking up his stats within the past 10 games he has a course d4 percentage like pushing almost 60 percent so you you you're, th- you're thinking you're thinking to yourself well now I have to write something almost to balance it out 
right? And so you think to yourself, maybe I was too hard, and now you almost have to not. I'm not correcting it by any by any means, but I think when there's a story there, almost on the opposite angle, it's almost like even more exciting, especially as a blogger, because you don't editorial control is almost in like your own realm. And I I really really think it's interesting when like there's those kind of cases. And who would have thought like a subtweet overall would have been the thing that like got my attention, right? <laughs> Dumbest thing ever. No, that's a good thing though. I and you can frame that accordingly so that people don't think that you're backtracking or you don't think that you're glossing over that the track record that is Jack Johnson, right? Uh, his Jack Johnson and that particular off ice issue is a really interesting thing. And if you look at a lot of different players, like Lyndon Bay, for example, is another example of a significant off-ice issue that likely impacted his play in Vancouver and it's likely impacted his play to some degree with Calgary, where, you know, his his dad basically wanted to kill his mom. Like, that's not that's not a normal story for either, like, any of us on this this podcast, where let alone the fact that it's an NHL player that has to deal with it, right? And the bankruptcy thing is a peculiar thing because you have to you have to assume that there is some weight on him impacting his play, but it's it's so tricky because you can't start factoring in things that you can't measure like that because then you 100%. fall down a, yep. a weird tangent. But yeah, the the framing element of stuff like that is really interesting. I've been in situations like that before where like somebody subtweets me or they they want to yell something awful at me and or DM me, and it's actually helped me write better stories because. I, I do it in, I'm kind of a, a spiteful person, but I'll just write a story in spite of somebody like that. It's why I became a blogger. It's because yeah. somebody told me nobody would read what I was going to write. And look at where I am now, Matthew. <laughs> look at where I am. Community manager for the best flames website on the internet. Yeah. Showed him. <laughs> well, actually this kind of is a perfect segue and I know we're way over on time. So we'll keep it, you know, pretty quick is that like slowly, but surely. And I, I, I want more people to realize this is that you're one of the best follows on Twitter. Uh, a lot of times, I, at least in my opinion, I enjoy it a whole lot. You may pfft all you want, but I, I really, really do enjoy following you. What, what does it take on your end? Is it just more of like you know, being having fun out there and, and you know, getting pucks in deep, or what is it for you that is uh, that, that you Twitter know? Corsi per six? Yeah, exactly. Per 60. Exactly. My, uh, my Twitter Corsi per sixty is sixty nine point sixty nine, and uh, oh, definitely. It, and my Twitter, my tweets against me are 42.0. So nice and very nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think I talked to you about this before, Sam. Like We have, yeah. I'm, I'm a very sad, depressed human being on the inside. And uh, like many people who were drawn to comedy and sports, I take all of that sadness inside of me in my personal life. And I try to make other people feel better about their lives when they're struggling. So that's... That's kind of just what I do. I just make stuff that hopefully puts a smile on somebody's face. And if it irritates them and they let me know that it's irritated them, I'm going to do it again because it might make somebody else laugh or <laughs> they might realize that it was actually funny after all. And uh, then I make a friend out of them. But it's more on it's not it's not normal like that. But thank you. I, I try. What, okay, there's one thing that I had to ask you on the podcast today, and somebody I, I saw somebody ask you this on Twitter, but it didn't bother to follow up because I wanted to ask on the podcast. But how is it when you make those photoshops? You know, when you take like a like an in-game fun fact, like you know, player X uh, leads his team and this and has a kid and whatever other random fun fact. Fuck, I don't know. And you 
and you add something like today, Yarmir Yager has lived through 16 American presidents and, you know, helped liberate France in 1944. You always find the perfect font. How do you find the perfect font? Um, so... You act, he's, he's like a magician, man. He's not going to give away his secrets because then everyone's going to no, be out I, there. There's no, there's no way you're just scrolling on defont.com and finding what like FSN Arizona uses for their like fonts on TV. Okay, there, so are you actually doing that? Let me. Okay, I won't tell. I won't say what typeface I use because I paid money for it. And this is this is my this is my baby. This is my empire. I'm gonna I'm gonna close door <laughs> black black box this stuff, but. <laughs> I will explain what happened very quickly, so I don't we don't go over too much time. Uh, last season, um, I was in a private chat with a good friend of mine named Aaron. Uh, you might know him on Twitter as uh, like ATF thirteen ATF. He does similar stuff that I do. Like it's kind mm-hmm. of like our 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 good content boy gang. You know, we got some sweet rap poses and stuff like that. But uh, we were just talking about dumb stuff that we saw in broadcasts and how annoying it was. And he sent me a screenshot. He's like. Let's see what we can do with this. No, no pressure. And I was like, okay. And so we went about it the old-fashioned way of just cutting every letter and building our own typeface, like building a, a quick repository of like letters and sizes and stuff like that out, so that we would have them. But that takes like forty-five minutes to do. Like if you're t- if you're trying to do one sentence, it takes forever. So we uh, we took a variety of different screenshots of text being used on broadcasts across the NHL over the course of a week or two, and uh, we pumped them into some font systems and you know like what font is and defont and a uh, font squirrel and stuff like that and we narrowed it down to about four or five and then uh we just started playing with them in like a test like in a test environment on their website and we actually found the perfect match and it cost 120 dollars american um so I made the poor decision at the time to buy the font rather than buy groceries so I didn't eat for a couple of days and by like not eat for a couple of days, like I didn't eat anything because I didn't have any money. And uh, during that time, I just started pumping up, you know, stupid photoshops of dumb things uh, that I thought were funny, and it caught on. Like the guys at Fox Sports Arizona threatened to block me if I ever posted one of them again. <laughs> uh, Fox Sports California, like the guy, the team that covers the Kings, because I, I I I really pile on on California teams just because it's so easy. Uh, a bunch of their broadcast team found out about them and they contacted Shang Peng. I think it was Shang. Yeah. I know it was either Shang or Eric was one of the two guys um, that I, I love dearly. Uh, and they DM me. They're like, hey, this is what happened the other day at uh, an AHL game. And like, do you know this guy? He's like, oh, yeah, I went for beers with him at the, the stadium series. Like, he's a great guy. They're like, was that on the broadcast? And he's like, no, no, he's just really good at this. And then like the Bo Bennett thing the other week and some other stuff has floated around. I don't know. It's getting kind of old. I think I might, I might change to something else soon here. It might be good I to miss, reinvent. I love the, uh, I love the, who did the hockey. I thought that chart was so funny. And I've so many times wanted to retweet it from NHL numbers, but I talked myself out of it. Cause I'm like, oh geez, like, you know, there's people that actually follow this for cap information, not just like, jokes and like dumb shit that i come up with but like oh my god those are those are definitely my favorite drance would be on both of us very quickly being like what do you yeah, guys there'd do? be there'd be an email like within seconds if I, if I was retweeting that but he watches over us all that's exactly what he's doing uh now well other thing too that i kind of upsets me is that and i think jeff brought it up on twitter is what do you think about stuff like that when it's like on reddit and it's not attributed to you does that piss you off oh it pisses, it pisses me off for you 
Yeah, that sucks. Oh, like content appropriation. Yeah. So, yeah, like I, I think it's annoying that, like on one hand, people people wonder why people get bent out of shape about it. Like, oh, it's just an image. Like you put, you did this. It's like it's not a big deal. It's like, well, I do this as a cathartic release to make myself a little bit happier. And I do that to make other people happy. And I was like, I'm glad that people are finding it funny and they want to share it with people. The The other element is if you're putting time and effort into making things, um, vines, video edits, you know, something as stupid as what I do, you kind of just want it to be left on one source and have people share it out. Not because like I want to be internet famous or get all the retweets. Like I, I don't care about that stuff. It's completely pointless. We're all going to die eventually. Like nobody's gonna be like, oh yeah, there's Mike lived to 70 and had, you know, 4,000, almost 5,000 followers on Twitter. Nobody cares, right? It's just like, if I put X amount of time into something, I would like it to just be shared from where it was originally created or originally posted, because then I can actually see where it's going to, and I can actually track its progress. Because I think it's really neat, especially like with the advent of more big data and analytics and stuff like that for web traffic like it's kind of cool to be like wow my tweet got posted here and here and here and all these people thought it was funny and hopefully i made a bunch of people smile um like the i get kind of annoyed but at the end of the day it's like some some random schlub hockey player who's injured all the time (laughs) thought what i made was funny and he didn't block me or yell at me about it so it's like i gotta be doing something right i i just wish like people in the hockey twitter world would just not repost people's like hard, you know, the work that they really work hard on. It's just insulting. I had some people try that with like the infographics I made for hockey graphs, for, like for Garrett and those guys. And that, like that specifically, like when I put in like some work that is actually val- what I think is valuable for the community for understanding things, like the reposting it or removing my watermarks, like, yeah, I'm going to be worked up about that because. I spent like 35 hours on it. Yeah, for sure. It's completely understandable. Now, Mike, last question for me before we let go, because this is what ended up trying to be like, you know, 20, 30 minute conversation is now almost an hour. Uh, What is your favorite storyline from this year? I kind of I like asking different hockey people about it because it's always interesting to see what people pick up from the season itself. Um, I think. Honestly, I think the the Oilers as a an enemy pick it's it's really interesting living in the city and being a flames fan it's because yeah. you, you you can kind of appreciate not being subjected to the the same biases that uh, an oilers fan would be or an oilers blogger would be and so the chris russell thing is really interesting to watch like just observing how they're interacting with him as a player and what he can create the 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 belief in Connor McDavid is really interesting. It's almost cult-like, not in a, a negative or positive way. It's just like a, it's weird to observe. It's probably the same vibe that people get with Matthews in Toronto and with Crosby in Pittsburgh, but it's interesting. Like just watching this team maybe kind of piece it together finally, or completely fall apart again. It's like, this is the year for them to finally put it together and or also like people will be like calling there's gonna be a calling on Jasper Ave or 104th Ave like right outside the arena um yeah I think that that alone is really interesting to follow yeah the Oilers I I I I can definitely relate with you because I mean like I guess I'm an Oilers fan growing up but to be totally honest like right now I don't really find myself liking the team that much I mean you know I watch them and I I but I I I so infrequently I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know what it is. I think it. I think a big part of it had to 
that really killed me with the Oilers was when Daryl Cage threatened to move the team to Seattle and there was the whole arena thing. I just was really bothered by the whole, uh, the, the whole like capitalist thing there. And it was, it's, it's, it's been hard to cheer for the organization since, but I'm, what I will say though, is I'm very, very happy for the city. And I was talking about this with a friend recently is how badly I want to see playoff hockey in Edmonton, though. I don't really care if you always make the playoffs. It would be really nice to see, people happy about that in this city because the, the city genuinely does care so much about the team and the team makes the makes the people here so happy and i mean like you said mcdavid with the cult thing it's so true like it's not it's not an insult at all it's not like you know this is some branch davidian thing where you're gonna like i don't know someone's gonna shoot somebody over chrono mcdavid but it's just like a it's a perfect thing and everyone just everyone's so happy watching this team be good and it's so nice it's it, it's a it's a really refreshing thing to see here and i think if they do make the playoffs then like the city will be a damn riot and it'll be awesome to be a part of mike it's been a pleasure having you on but uh i want you to you know tell us where we can find you on twitter where we can find your writing what you've been up to recently and uh you know maybe a tv show or a book you've read, read recently that you'd like to plug yeah uh so you can find me on twitter at at Mike Fail, Mike, F-A-I-L. You can find me at Flamestation, flamestation.ca, where I write stats things, tactics things, systems things, uh, anything that my editor doesn't want to do or that she's busy with something else on. Um, you can find me on the Flamestation podcast that we just finally launched a couple of weeks ago that we're starting to get into the rhythm of things on. Um I don't. You can find me on the mean streets of downtown Edmonton on my lunch break, where, <laughs> where I will be clutching a venti pumpkin spice latte because they are delicious, and nobody tells me not to drink them because they are wonderful. Um, yeah, like I'm just playing a lot of Overwatch because season three came out for the uh, the ladder and uh, competitive play, and uh, I'm listening to a whole lot of. Um, I don't even know, like really, I. I have like a 2016 playlist of like my favorite albums that came out this year. I spent the last like four days listening to the latest Hotelier or Hotelier uh, record goodness, which is really good if you're into uh, post emo revival music and the new American football album is really good too. I was about to say, I really, really like that new American football album. Um, but I guess we can close this out now. You can follow me at Sam underscore blazer. You can follow cam at Coombe. I, I really get upset that you're making me say this every single time. Oh, I Cam. love I love listening to you say it. Oh you... man, I sit back every single time. I wish I had the video on still because every time I sit back in this chair, put my arms in the air behind my head, and just smile as you say "at Coom." It's hilarious. <laughs> I I really really wish you'd change that Twitter handle. Um, but you can rate and subscribe uh, to the podcast. It'd be very very nice. We'd appreciate it, Mike. We appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. No, no doubt. But until next time. Mm-hmm. Bye.